Hi, welcome to the Covenant Presbyterian Church podcast, a weekly broadcast of our Sunday sermon. Covenant Presbyterian Church is an open, affirming congregation, and we're so glad you found us. Our primary mission is to equip God's people to serve Christ in the world. In our weekly messages, we hope that you'll find inspiration, encouragement, and even challenge for your faith journey. Please listen with us now. So I'm not sure if any of of you all remember what you were up to on January 2nd around 9 p.m. this year. But if any of you all were watching the Buffalo Bills game versus the Cincinnati Bengals game, you'll remember it. Uh, We were, uh, my family and I, we were up a little late during the holidays too and we had that game on. My son and his grandfather, my dad, were locked in a fantasy football championship battle. And the points that would be accumulated in this game would decide the winner. And there's like $90, you know, pot there, so it's good. And a trophy. Um, So we were all on our screens when, maybe you remember this, 24-year-old defensive safety, DeMar Hamlin, took a hit and collapsed to the turf. Now, what happened next was basically unprecedented. After the commercial break, the game came back on but DeMar Hamlin was still down on the field. His teammates, coaches, medical personnel, they were all on their knees surrounding him, shielding him from the camera's view, and CPR was being administered. Now the fans in the stands were quiet. Stations cut quickly again to announcers who usually are talking heads, now only stammered and stuttered, at a loss and not really knowing what to say. When the commercial breaks were over, TV audiences saw that an ambulance had arrived on the field. And it took Mr. Hamlin off to the hospital, and people began to realize that this young man might die. And the coaches and the players, they went off the field into their locker rooms. Over the next several days, if you weren't watching the game, maybe you started hearing about this story because DeMar Hamlin's name was all over the news and his life was in our prayers. And he had suffered cardiac arrest that night. So his family had a spokesperson that shared information. Uh, We learned that he had a charity for kids in need and we watched as those coffers swelled. Bengals fans, Buffalo fans, NFL fans in general, they all made the trek to Cincinnati Hospital to hold prayers, hold vigils and have prayers And we began to celebrate the fast response of the first responders. The league said they would honor his full contract and not put him on injured reserve. And when DeMar Hamlin did come to in the ICU, don't you know his first question was whether or not the Bills had won the game? Incidentally, the game was suspended. But I'm happy to say that today Mr. Hamlin is recovering well. Maybe you know this if you've been following the story. He's no longer intubated, full neurological capabilities. He was discharged from the hospital, and he even visited the Bills locker room and his teammates yesterday. Now, no doubt it will be a long road ahead with trials and with testing, but something happened as he started this journey that offers a strong witness for us today. In moments of uncertainty, 
we saw people turn to each other and to God. Now, our passage for today in Scripture, it's really all about uncertainty. It falls immediately after Jesus' baptism, and just as soon as he is lifted up out of the water to be claimed as God's very own, well then, he's sent out into the wilderness, and he's tempted by the devil. Now, that sounds shocking to us, an unexpected turn of events when God's Son himself navigates really difficult days. And now we know that he was baptized, but his ministry has yet to begin. So the future, though promised, it's still unknown. He doesn't really know that he'll call people and they'll just come. He doesn't yet understand the number of hordes that he will heal. And the present moment, the future, it's uncertain. And the present moment in the desert it's just really hard. The landscape is barren in the desert. Nothing really grows. Scripture tells us Jesus is famished. He's been fasting for 40 days, 40 nights. He's physically and spiritually tired. Now, if we didn't know the story so well and know where it falls in the context of Matthew, maybe we would be a bit more uneasy when we see the devil arrive on the scene, maybe we would start breathing a little more quickly when the adversary approaches Christ with these beautiful offers. Maybe we'd think the devil has a shot after all. But we know that Jesus, even in his altered state, passes all the tests. When the devil says, well, you could turn these stones into bread, Jesus quotes scripture, and says, it is written, one does not live by bread alone. The devil says, you can throw yourself down from the highest point and God will save you. And Jesus says, I will not test God. You can have all the powers and the glory of the kingdoms of this world. Jesus says, get away from me, Satan. And the angels rush in. Did you catch this? At the very end of Matthew's account, once Jesus has banished the tempter, we hear this. Suddenly, angels come and waited on him. Do you remember that one of the temptations where the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, the devil said, throw yourself down and God will command his angels to save you. So Jesus said no, but now God has sent angels. And now they wait on him. Now we know that this is not the only place that angels and messengers show up in the Bible. Not by a long shot. From Genesis to Judges to Ezekiel and Daniel through Hebrews and Revelation and well into Acts, these messengers of God are everywhere. They can appear alone or as part of an army they can be dazzling in bright light and glory or indistinguishable from humans. They are spiritual beings that serve God in the realm of nature, or they can be members of the divine council who sit on high with God. They can appear as messengers of God announcing great things, and 
They do earn their reputation as destroying angels, at times visiting evil spirits on people as powerful and beloved as Saul and Moses. But here they come to Jesus as encouragers. Here they waited on him. Here they offer comfort and care. Now I imagine after the 40 days of fasting and battling with the devil, Jesus finds himself in a state of disrepair. What would it be like to have been one of those angels as they serve him and wipe his wounds, as they lay their hands on his head, place water on his lips? They are his community in his confusion. And in his time of testing, Jesus relies on God Jesus depends on God's word, and Jesus relies on God's messengers, too. There's an important book written by Professor Shirley Guthrie of Columbia Theological Seminary. Some of you all might have heard his name before. And in that book, Shirley Guthrie says that our biggest struggle, that humanity's daily test, that the ultimate temptation that our sin is the unwillingness to be who we are. Human beings who are made in the image of God and in community with God and with our fellow human beings. So he goes on to say, sin, it's not really those seven deadlies. That can be a manifestation, but it's not really pride or acquiescence or sensuality, or even disobedience. He says sin is the unwillingness to be what we are. Sin is not loving and not willing to let ourselves be loved in return. Now, I think y'all already know this, but my interest in football is honest. I come from a long line of football family. In fact, over Christmas, we were just talking up the stories of my grandfather, who definitely played under General Nalen at the University of Tennessee in a winning football season, and also maybe played in the Rose Bowl. We're still trying to check that out. Um, my dad was uh, on the line in college, too, and coached high school ball most of my life. On Friday night, I was out there under the lights. And my husband, y'all have met him, he played sprint lightweight football in college. And my son is the starting quarterback, although that's not really a thing, for the Candler Park Chargers flag football team. Go Chargers. <laughs> and yours truly even was the center in the co-ed league and seminary, my glory days, that I will not let go by. So it's true that I'm a fan of the game, but I'm also a pastor and a peacemaker and try to be a responsible citizen, and so I don't swear blind allegiance to football. I'm a fan because of and not in spite of the game and that it is beautiful and terrible and ultimately that it is human. See, football is contradictory. It is a terribly violent sport, grievous injuries, long-time health consequences, potentially death on the field. 
My son and I read a series of football books and baseball books written by a man named Tim Green who played for the Falcons in defense and now he suffers with ALS, probably from sustained football injuries through the years. But it is incredibly beautiful too, a real family where each person on the turf has a job to do. And those jobs, they require different gifts. And not one is more important than the other. The tight end cannot say to the wide receiver, I have not need for you. Nor can the quarterback say to the offensive line, I will do this on my own. It's a sport that's truly about team. And it does become something more, like a family, like a body. And now there are in football the contradictions of racism. There are elements of this institutional racism where the majority of players in this hard-hitting game are people of color and those in charge ultimately are called owners. And yet, millionaires are made from those people and visibility is leveraged for platforms on anti-racism that made Colin Kaepernick a household name. I know, we watched the Netflix series. And then, football is contradictory. It's a billion-dollar industry that promotes drinking and roughhousing and gambling among its fans. There are prison cells built into stadiums. I know that at least in Philadelphia, that is true. But then people love their teams, weeping at losses and rejoicing with wins. There's even fight songs played at funerals. I know this. And I can't tell you how many eulogies I've heard that have been built around or at least share stories about the experience of watching your favorite team with the deceased. And last week, when DeMar Hamlin lay without a heartbeat on the Cincinnati field, football showed us the best of us and the worst of us too. Now when he dropped like that, no one really knew what to do. There were no plays to run, no cart to take him off and resume tackles. There were no jokes to make or stats to give. They may have, we may have, just participated in something that killed a young man. And there was even the possibility that the game could go on. You remember a rumor that they might start to play again after a five-minute warm-up. It was like we were gladiators back in the day. But that didn't happen. That didn't happen. And instead, on the field, a congregation of blue and white gathered in a circle and got on their knees to offer their prayers in prime time. And they shielded their friend's body from the public view with their own massive frames. And they wept, and they hugged, and they worried. And they relied on each other, on their team, and on God to make it through this moment and these days. And the fans, too, offered this rarefied silence. In the stadium, sacred solidarity was born where, just before, 
raucous chants of rivals had boomed. And from their living rooms, people took the lead from sports announcers, jovial quoters of stats who now just mumbled the phrase, we hope and we pray. And everyone reached out hand to hold on to their neighbors. The quote that popped up in the following days on social media, on the football field, on newscasts, on clothing, was boiled, in, boiled it all down to this, a wonderful witness, love for DeMar. Now my sister just happened to be at the Bills game that was played after the one that was suspended by the Bengals. Her husband, my brother-in-law, is from Buffalo, and so they were up there for 50th anniversary and they had tickets to the game. She said she admitted that usually she leaves any sports event in the third quarter to go back to the car and get on her phone. But in this one, she stayed. It was a spiritual experience. In the stands, people were laughing and crying. A woman had hand-painted cloths and given them out across this huge stadium with hearts and the number three. And she said every time they showed on the big screen a picture of the quarterback, Josh Allen, you could just tell that he had been crying. And in his interview after the game, Josh Allen said this when they asked him what it was like. He talked about a miraculous play. It was the kickoff, and the Bills returned it for a touchdown. This had not happened in three years and three months. And when they asked Josh Allen, here's what he had to say. He said, it was spiritual. It's enough to make you believe in God. Friends, we have Sunday morning witness, but we know God speaks in so many ways too, even on Sunday afternoon. And here's the truth. What we saw is a moment of uncertainty, and what we know is that people pulled together and people turned to God. And I don't have to tell you this, but there will be times of uncertainty for us too. And when there are, we can remember Jesus in his own desert, faced by his own testing and his own temptations, faced by the devil, that he was called on to rely on God and God's word, and God's messengers too. And for this, we are truly grateful. Thanks be to God. Alleluia. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Covenant Presbyterian Church podcast. I invite you to visit our website, covpresatl.org. That's C-O-V-P-R-E-S-A-T-L.org. There you'll find current worship information, links to our live Sunday morning streaming service, and our full archive of recorded services. You'll also find out more about us and how to get in touch. I wish you well in these strange times. God is with us. Grace and peace to you.